Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I once decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. Ethnotech are a tour de force of storytelling, taking performance and tandem telling to a whole other level. Nancy and Robert are highly decorated. They've received a National Storytelling Network Circle of Excellence Award, San Francisco Green Business Award. They have been Artist of the Year, won a Parents' Choice Gold Award, a National Parenting Silver Award, an Emmy for Best PBS Pilot, a Bronze Telly for Jackie Torrance Presents Asian Stories, and an Izzy Finalist. Whew! Robert and Nancy have travelled and performed all over the world and extensively across the States sharing traditional Asian and Asian-American tales. These two people are wonderful tellers. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. So Robert and Nancy, thank you so much for joining me on um, Conversations with Storytellers. I have admired you for a great deal of time and I'm very excited that you I've, we've been able to finally nail down a date and get together and do stuff together, which is exciting for me. So how, first of all, how, how did you two meet? Wow. Well, um, I auditioned for a musical play at the Asian American Theater Workshop and in um, San Francisco. In San Francisco, and uh, um, Robert happened to be the musical director of the the play, and that's how we met. Yeah. I did not. I mean, I got the part of a dance. I was going to be a dancer in it, and the Anastasia of the Wolf, but um, but then they took all the dances out. So I did light and Robert continued as the musical director. Yeah. Yeah. And we were all part of this uh, in the late mid to late seventies in San Francisco, as in many urban areas, there is a, a, a cultural magnet happening among Asian American artists. And they want to come to the big city to find themselves, explore uh, this new idea called Asian America um, with history and culture and community service and so, yeah, so it was a huge arts, yeah, Asian huge American arts, arts organization. Movement. And um, I had been actively involved in that with cultural activism, with songwriting and singing at rallies and things. And Nancy was fairly new to that scene. I, I had to the seen Asian American scene. I was mostly in the the white and multicultural scene as a dancer yeah. and choreographer, teaching dance, modern dance. Because right, that was your background, right, Nancy? Mm -hmm. You were a, a dancer originally. Yes. Yeah. So when she appeared. Um, it was like, wow, who's the new face in town? <laughs> yeah, so um, I had my sights set on her, and the stage was set. <laughs> and in the 70s, you could do that. <laughs> yes. 40 years. It wasn't yeah. frowned upon in the 70s. So, yeah. so Robert, you your background also is not storytelling originally. It was no, it's music. music, right? Yeah, mostly right. music, songwriting, and um uh, I'm a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, keyboard is my strength. Um, but songwriting at that time for me was all about um, social justice and political songs that are related to Asian American environment. Um, and so um, uh, part of that too was to, uh, to, to become, um, it, to, to find a, a traditional type of music that would go, that would be very ancient. So I discovered that part of me that's Filipino. I discovered uh, Philippine gong music called Kulintang. And it's a, a bronze gong music that's about um, well, third century uh, Mindanao Philippines. And so I traveled there and studied and came back and started teaching. At that time, Nancy and I already were together. So we both sort of started this phenomenon in the Bay Area uh, of traditional Philippine gong music. I mean, there were many Filipinos. There were other groups doing uh, Filipino cultural things. But more Spanish-oriented. Yeah, more you know. co colonized music and culture. Oh, and ours okay. was an indigenous art form, so it um, it really was it unique. It started a whole movement. Now there's several 
several performing groups using cooling tang. Right. So we yeah. weren't at all familiar with storytelling. Not at all. Yeah. So when someone asked us, um, I'm doing a conference and I was thinking of having storytelling in it. Um, do you guys tell stories? And we thought, huh? Huh? What's that? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. yeah, sure we do. A and gig. then we go, oh my God, what is storytelling? That's funny, right? <laughs> There's a gig, yeah, sure, okay. So we um, uh, found a story. Our very first story was 10,000 Treasure Caves from uh, the Dong ethnic minority group in China. It's basically like an Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, you know, a cave of treasures. And um, it, it became um, one of our signature pieces. In fact, for many years, it was the only story. Maybe we knew <laughs> no. one other story. We knew two um, others. <laughs> yeah, but we hadn't really um, had. We didn't get much uh, traction in the storytelling world till soon after that. It just shot up like a yeah. Rocket. And then as soon as I mean, it just, some reason it just took off. And mainly, maybe it was because we didn't know what storytelling was. That you're you st you know the storytelling world in America is standing at a microphone and just telling the story. But we used our own background, so choreography and music, dance, dance movement, and, and music, had theater background and too. We so both we had some theater, so we put all those together to create the the story performance. And because there were two of us, there was two of us. We obviously did it. The two of us. We didn't know that you didn't, you know, that most people were solo yeah. artists. Right. And we so, uh, we had the the the. The story police blew the whistle on us many times, saying, "Well, they're not storytellers. They move around too much. They they act. They're acting and they're dancing stories." And we say, "Yeah, well, have you heard of uh, Bharatanatyam, South Classical Music Theater Dance from India, or Rakugo, which is Japanese traditional storytelling with lots of gestures, or um, many Asian traditions of storytelling incorporate music, song, dance, theater?" And so we just we were inspired by those forms, and um, we just kept doing what we do. Plus, you had a little Gene Kelly, Three Stooges, uh, <laughs> Danny Kaye, you know, physical comedy folks. And um, we always added that element into it as well. That's nice. So so what did you what did you study at college, both of you? <laughs> I have a master's in social work, so I also had a private practice yeah. in yeah. psychotherapy. And she has a lifetime I, client too. Uh, yeah. That's you, right? Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> a piece of work. I don't think the 50 minutes will ever be you over. No, it's not over. <laughs> it never ends. But yeah. yeah, so I had a private practice and I was still teaching dance and choreographing for companies and stuff like that. Yeah. My background, uh, I was uh, in a science. Um, zoology was my major at UC Davis in California. And I was actually a pre-med. I was trying to get into medical school to be a good son, just like my father, the doctor, and my mom, the nurse. I got to be a doctor, be in healthcare. And then when I didn't get accepted to seven different applications to medical school, I figured maybe I better think this over. It's a good thing, you know. I mean, he would have been singing to them or, you know. Telling him a good story. Well, well, that's not a bad way of doctoring people. I, don't, I know healing people, healing people through story and song. That would be yeah. awesome. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I missed all that's, that blood. Yeah. Gosh, so, you miss it. Missed all the blood. Yeah. So, so do you try and find road accidents? <laughs> I do like graphic stories of you know blood and guts. Oh, he does. We met. We both had science backgrounds, and but yeah, I had, had a double major: biology and psychology. And then a master's in social. But also we have the common uh, uh, background of, of there was an artist yearning to be free. And so we um, ended up uh, finding each other and exploring the artistic part of ourselves. So um, what drew you to folk and fairy tales as opposed to personal narrative and, and stuff like that? Was that was that your interest in the, the eth ethnical music that you were looking at and the ethnical dance that you were well, so, yeah, so remember, we didn't know what storytelling was. So right. the only thing we could think about must be, you know, stories from our culture uh, and folktales, myths and legends. So we somehow just automatically went there. We didn't really know there was a movement starting for personal stories. And, um, and even once it got entrenched and folktales started to be pushed out, um, and personal stories were it. Um, as an Asian American, as a minority group, we didn't think in our colonized 
thinking process that anyone would be interested in an in our stories. Yeah, and you know, part of uh, Asian and Asian American culture is that you don't talk about yourself. You know, you're, it's a, it's somewhat rude. It's private, and, and yeah, it, no, don't you bring don't attention to yourself. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so let, let, I want to pedal back on that just a little bit. So, what you you felt like you couldn't talk about what you did and yourselves and your culture because of um, colonization or because of your your culture is, is a lot more humble than the, the uh, white white American culture that likes to brag a lot. I think it's both. Um, you know, the fact that we have been told not to talk about oneself out in public, um, plus being a minority in our, in this American white culture, majority culture, that you aren't, you're not even visible. Um, there's a whole phenomenon which I talk about in the now, a personal story I do, about, you know, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. And so during the apartheid times, you know, there was only black and white. So where, where was I supposed to be? Where was I supposed to sit on a bus or a streetcar? What, what bathroom was I, public bathroom was I supposed to go to? And it was very clear that if I wanted to be respected, I needed to identify as white. So, so that made me invisible as, a, as an Asian, right? Wow. So I That's think, amazing. yeah. So I think that it's both that we don't, we're, not, we're taught not to hang our dirty laundry out. But on top of it, we have been made to feel less. I had a psychotherapist my, for myself. And he once told me that I would always be seen as a second class citizen, which just shocked me. But that's the but kind the of message that you get. So why would anyone be interested in our stories? Of course, we were wrong. Yeah. But it took yeah. all these years to see that it's it's not true. That people yeah. are interested. Yeah. Very interested. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I like Anansi stories. There are some African stories that I like, um, but Japanese and Chinese stories that they're. they're you know, they're kind of like my next favorite after the European story. Yeah. Don't, don't tell them. <laughs> but um, that's, I mean, the thing that I like about those stories is that they're so varied. Um, and there are some really wonderful, bawdy tales that, you know, that, you know, I was going through this one book of Japanese folktales and I'm like, I can't tell any of these to kids. And they're, they're amazing stories. They're such good stories. Yeah. Um, one, so, yeah, I mean, the, this whole invisibility um you know i mean I, I didn't grow up in the states right and i know that the 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 racism here um and and the the, the colonialization um it it seems at least to me um a lot more prevalent over here than it ever was in the uk and maybe i just didn't grow up in the right place to notice it and i didn't hang out with the the right people to notice it but um yeah, it's, it's, you know, I didn't learn about the uh, Japanese internment camps until I was over here in the States. And that was just like, what? <laughs> like, right. We aren't even taught that. We, I wasn't taught that in any history class I when I was in school. Right. Yeah. It was None of that's history. in the history books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so much right. of, um, growing up um, in America as an Asian person, you don't realize that you're sitting on a, on a groundswell or foundation of decades and now centuries of racism centuries, yeah. you know it's it was systematic from the get mm -hmm. about property ownership about who who's considered who, a human being who could who is be a not. citizen who could vote yeah no, and, none of that was able for the chinese yeah so and, the idea the idea of invisibility has been uh, um has been a, a very cultivated growth over the last uh, the last yeah, three, three four hundred years of america except that in my my now personal story i say but except that we are very visible when it comes to racism so the minute they see our face they consider us foreigners still even though my family's been here since 1850 but i'm still considered not an american and america does export that kind of thinking all over the world through their movies and their magazines and commercials and, and you know it's changing now but when i went to china for the first time my 
father's unc uh, brother's wife asked if I'm the American relative, why am I not having blonde hair and blue eyes? So that's how wow. how strong the export the, the export of America saying who is really American. And we know that with this movement going on right now of, you know, we will not be replaced by Jews. We will not be replaced. You know, that the white um, Supremac supremacists uh, are saying the same thing, that this is this is who's real American and the rest of you are don't really belong here. You should go back where you came from. And I think the difference between the UK and America in terms of racism is that mm -hmm. America from the get became multicultural versus England. Or the, yeah? Well, I don't know. UK had, oh, they yeah. were colonists for a long time. Yeah, but colonists, yeah. but did they live in England? But they brought in all that color. Well, not for yeah. a long than the time. US did. Not for a long time, I don't think. No, we yeah, we started it. I got <laughs> I gotta take ownership of this. Yeah, you started the colonization. The French and the Spanish and the English. Right. The yeah. But did you bring did you bring people of color that many to to the UK? Well, that's how the it empire is. works. Yeah. The yeah, empire I mean, empire does do that. I mean uh, that you know, I grew up in the seventies, um, and there was a huge Indian population yeah. in, in my yeah. town and there were so, certain pockets of England yeah. where there, there were a majority of, of uh, people from from India or from um, Pakistan right yeah but and that's the 70s Kong, that's or Hong Kong anywhere where there was the 70s a... we're talking 1800s 1700s yeah, here but, in America yeah. right I mean the, yes so the, a lot of people I don't know about or uh, people from Asia, right? But I know that a lot of African American, uh, not African Americans, but a lot of Africans were brought over. People from mm -hmm. the continent of Africa were yeah. brought over, and a lot of people from the West Indies. Yeah. Um, and the and West Hong Indies Kong provided a pipeline too, so Hong Kong yeah. brought Chinese into UK. So why do you think it's not the same? Well, I don't know. I just, I just wonder if you know, I. I you know, I grew up in a small town, but it was fairly cosmopolitan. It was the majority of, was white, I have to say, right? But I, I don't know. Maybe I just never saw the racism. Yeah, you have to. Me. Yeah, have I to see, when I first came over here, I saw it, and you hear oh. about it, right? Oh. And the only kind of like racism that I saw and witnessed, um, there was there was a lot of um, anti anti feeling towards people from India. Um, people for you know people from the continent of africa they there were pockets of people that that were like hateful and we did have like the the neo-nazis you know and i went to those rallies to spit on them and throw Just things at them and all that kind of stuff but um you know it's it's it was very isolated you know i didn't grow up in london you know where where all the the big culture was and i didn't move into london until i was in my 20s and the only time I actually felt threatened was by a white guy, <laughs> ironically. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, you know, I, I, I was in Brixton, which was a very, you know, don't go there kind of place. It was a very oh. violent, dangerous place to go. And I was, I was visiting a friend in, in Brixton. And I, I actually, I was being followed by this white guy. Um, and I hooked up with this, uh, this family of people people of color and said you might you know I'm being followed by this guy I think he's you know he's got nefarious ideas on his <laughs> mind to do something to me can I walk with you at least for a ways and they're like yeah sure you know and I jumped on a double-decker bus that was that was moving because it had an open back they don't have those oh, anymore yes. because of uh -huh. people tried to jump on the back like me at midnight or whatever time it was in the morning oh. And um, yeah, the guy was chasing after the bus, trying to get on it as well. It was, oh my gosh! It was, you know, mm. And it, that was, you know, wow. I've That's never scary. ever, I've, I've never felt threatened by people of color. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I to... think you'd have to ask a person of color right. about the racism, because yeah, yeah, yeah. You, because you didn't see it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's very true. That's very true. It, it, Back but, to the question of uh, why uh, maybe it's more. Um, polarized racialized in america is that you know you look back at the history there was a time you know before um emancipation right slavery was part of the economy 
Um, and of course, it happened in other countries as well. But the minute you divide that with North and South, Confederate and Union, and created laws that made it illegal, you, you sort of put this riff in a part that was so much a part of American life. You know, these people are property. You know, they're just they're Yeah, there was animals. a law and so that said they were separated property. that and you right, ignited. Right. No, uh, yeah, you ignited the, the Klan and, and all the Jim Crow laws. There was a certain galvanization of of you know sort of a racialized um tempering of what's and going it was on. in our government i mean that's our government yeah, um, yeah. was that yeah. so so that's, when you think about the the movement of civil rights in the 60s that was a huge upheaval for the powers that be and then since four you know here it is 50 years later it's still sitting on this rock bed of of, of crystallized racism that that hasn't um Reckon with itself, or in denial, which is even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe in a thousand years there will be a folktale about all of this. Yeah, but we actually, see, yeah, when we look for stories with folktales, we look for the uh, the stories that have these social these kinds um, of messages. social messages about racism or bigotry or mm -hmm. arrogance. Not seeing people as people, but we have a great one from Korea called "The Man Who Planted Onions." One of the first stories we 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 did which is a time when people could not tell the difference between cows and people. So people would sometimes end up eating people instead of cows. And so the way that um, the, the story works through is, you know, being able to see people as people and not just a piece of meat. Yeah. And so um, that's kind of that, that whole racial thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Wow. So, how, so what kind of trait? I mean, did you you didn't have any training in storytelling, really? You just went for it, made it up as you went along, right? Yeah. I mean, our theater experience helped, and also because she's a dancer, I'm a musician. We looked at language in different ways. We looked at language as movement and as kinesthetics and rhythm, um, rhythm, and for from a musical point of view, language has its temper, it has its tempo, it has its timbres, uh, punctuations and dynamics. So we're looking at um, storytelling language more dimensionally rather than yeah. just And I don't think we did language. it consciously, oh, let's do this timber and this. It's just because that's who we were and what we had been doing for years. It just came to be that way. Yeah, It, it worked rather um, magically, actually. It's not like we planned it, right? serendipitous mm -hmm. yeah i find that a lot of storytellers don't necessarily choose storytelling but storytelling chooses yes them. yes yeah. that, it sounds like it's the oh, same yeah. for you as well absolutely yeah. yeah it definitely is a culture a cult, <laughs> a cult. yeah yes, no, cult we, is we, probably a better word for it right yeah, yeah. i mean we would never never you know like when i was growing up i wanted to be a dancer i wanted to be a musical so of course there were no asians for that so so uh, but I don't think I would ever said I want to be a storyteller because I didn't know what it was. Right. Even as an adult, I didn't know what it was. It wasn't People until still don't know what it is. Yeah, right. We know what it is, That's but true. in general, right? That's I mean, I think this is like one of the biggest problems that we have with with yes. getting audiences. Bums on seats yeah. is, is yeah. that people don't because the word is so bantered around. It's like now know, it is. Spielberg yes. is a storyteller. Like no, he's not. He's a director. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, this and, musician is her lyrics are. It's a storyteller, no? Or this yeah. author is a great storyteller, but it's a written story. It's not the oral tradition. Yeah. yeah very different. It's yeah. Hugely, yeah. I, I think it's hugely different. It's very different, yeah. indeed. I guess the question from our profession and for all professional storytellers is how, given that that buzz is out there and everyone's using that word, <laughs> why not ride the wave and figure out how to say, well, yeah, well we are the real storytellers. <laughs> yeah, the real, the authentic ones, or yes. you thought that movie was good? Will you hear it between your ears? Yeah. All right. In front of a in-person live audience. Yeah. Yeah. If that ever happens again. Yeah. When that happens again. Yeah. So, so how did you find your voice? Was it, it, was it organic the way that it came out? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, because there's two of us. Um, right. And we have our own, you know, male, female, yin, yang bantering that goes on even in our personal life. Um, sometimes Nancy will start a sentence and I fill in the word or vice versa. So, uh, so it's a lot of, of the script. What, was that? what? 
I said, you don't get into trouble for that, Robert. Always. <laughs> no, actually, thank goodness, because our brain cells are starting to, you know, die here. So thank goodness you can remember that name and that word for me. Or, you know, I can remember what you're supposed to do. Remember you said. Oh, yes, and yeah. so, you know, but in this, in terms of, right, we write our stories. Robert does the research. So he, all he reads are, are folk tales and legends and myths. He's got a huge library of all these um, storytelling books from, um, from the Asian around world. Asia. Wow. So he does the research. He marks them with stars, which ones are four, which ones are one. So then I look at the fours and uh, we come upon the one we're going to work on next. And then either I will start the script or he will start the script. And then we send it back and forth and back and forth changing and editing and adding and deepening and enhancing until we've come to the one that we think this is it. And then even as we start memorizing and uh, working out the movements and the staging, it changes. So it just, it comes just in a very organic flow of um, this back and forth, finding the finding, finding the one. Yeah. And because we're thinking in terms of rhythm and music and sound and movement and message. Yeah. Sometimes we'll, we'll see a scene in or we'll think of a scene in the script and it might be a wave or it might be, you know, a, a, a physical thrust of a, a rock jutting up and that kind of physicality guides what we should do with our bodies. So we're thinking already um, kinesthetically. Right. And, and also there are times when, because we are movement that instead of s describing something or saying something, we just do it, you know? So, so it right. takes away the, the wording. So there's a pause, you know, there's the, the need for silence, but something else happening and before the words start flowing again. So it's, but it is very um, back and forth, back and forth until we find the one. Yeah. And, and do you, Nancy, do you do most of the choreography? With your dancing yeah. background or is that an organic thing as well I, I, based on what robert was saying about the, you know, the pushing right. up of the rock or the waves and stuff right like that, now i started and then um because of my dance and choreography background but robert um is a natural mover and in time he learned everything i know so he also can absolutely do the choreography himself if he wanted you know, and he does with his solo pieces. I don't have anything to do with his solo pieces. He does all the choreography, the gestures, everything, the writing. It's um, so he's learned a lot from his elder here. That's right, respect your elders, <laughs> uh, but also with the two of us. Really? So Nancy, you're the you're the older of the two. I'm ten years older than he is. Nice. Yeah. You <laughs> robbed the cradle, that's for sure. <laughs> Getting back to this thing of, of how we choreograph, is that between the two of us. There is also what I call a center of gravity. So uh, we know that if I go forward, she goes back. Vice versa, oh, yeah. if so, I go high, she goes low. So yeah. these are sort of choreographic sensibilities that we, we know. Staging and. It's like automatic. Yeah, now it is, yeah. That's so yeah. cool. How long did it take you to get to that point where it was automatic? Mm, probably five know. years. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But also so back you, to the thing. You, started, you, you created Ethnotech in 1982, is that right? Well, we started in 19, 1981 with the cooling tongue. Okay. And then we were betrayed in that. And so then we started doing performance art in uh, 1985. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting. We merged our contemporary and traditional and did interesting pieces, I must say. And then in 18, 1987 is when someone asked us to do a story. Yeah. Do you think trying to get a storytelling gig is hard? Try to get a performance art gig. <laughs> no, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. 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 So what were those early performance pieces like then? The ones that you were trying hard to get work for? Oh, like the, the performance art pieces? Performing? Yeah. Oh. oh, they were fun, actually. So one of the main pieces that we started with was, was taking that betrayal that happened with the Kulintang, our company and school, and... Um, and uh we turned it into performance art yeah it was it, but it all was, the things if the, if the the core message is about naivete or being blind to yeah when people stab you in the back yeah. you're just blind to so it. there's one point at which i'm i'm going da, 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 and and robert's 
head, hitting me on the head <clears throat> with drum beats, um, with a paper towel. Empty cardboard dowels. dowels. And so there's this night sun and he's hitting me over the head. <laughs> and I'm going, ah, you know, because we were so naive and thought everything was so nice. In the meantime, someone stabbing is in the back. So <clears throat> it's, um, it's a, it's a really, we wore white face in the beginning, even in storytelling. I don't know if you've seen those old pictures, but we wore white makeup, like no theater or oh, like can. Chinese opera. Oh, and right. so, okay. so the, the, your, your, expressions are really magnified that way and so there's all this um kind of you know using low stylized so, movement yeah we had this yeah. this cloth that we got tangled up in and um uh what else it was wacky stuff it's so. really wacky but it went did you get over good reviews for it? i mean do people <laughs> people came to see it yeah they did no and i think one critic said if if we only knew what they were doing. No, but, but another, critic, another critic said crystallized. Um, <laughs> it was, but she loved it. She said it was a yeah. crystallized. She got it. Yeah, she got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. how you, that, you know, a friend of mine who did some photography of this huge old mill that was falling down. Uh, she and I got uh, permission to go in it and photograph it. And so when when she came to do the her installation of photography, I didn't I, I I wasn't part of that part. I was just taking pictures for my own for for my own uh, pleasure. But um, she did these teeny tiny little like four by four prints, and one of the critics was like, "This is such a huge building, and it's such a beautiful old building that is collapsing. Why did she do do such small pictures?" And it's like, well, that's the whole point. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. That's the statement right there. Because it's a big building, you do small pictures. You don't have to, but that's what it's she chose to do. And it's like yeah. an artistic expression, right? Yes, yes. Some of these pictures have these, you know, these wonderful details of, of little things that are going on. And some people get art and some people don't. Yeah, some people yeah. get certain kinds of art and not other kinds. It's, right, uh, absolutely. It's yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what do you think is the most important part of the job for you? Wow. Well, from an artistic point of view, um, administratively, probably the administration of it. Getting the work to come in. Huh? Getting the work to come in. Yeah, marketing and uh, yeah, it's. Well, I think it's it's the, the most fun is finding the story and creating the the way we're going to do it. The worst part is memorizing and uh, marketing and marketing. Yeah. yeah, but I, I would say, yeah, for people who are listening to this, um, the most important thing is your art. You got to have that. You got to have the creativity. It's got to be. You got to strive for the best art. Mm -hmm. um, you won't know until you're in front of an audience. So then the second question comes: Get an audience. How do you do that? Well, you got to market yourself. So it's, um, you know, there's many ways where people can increase their artistic. Uh, first, they have to have some artistic talent. <laughs> you know, that's that's the challenge because some people don't recognize that they have no talent. <laughs> God, uh, no, and you know, there's that cultural thing, at least in the storytelling world, everybody's a storyteller. <laughs> well, that could be our downfall, you know, um, not well, everyone. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I do get that. It's like everybody can be a storyteller, but well, not everyone can, is a, but no, not everyone can make a living doing it. Right? Yeah, I mean, but no, there are people who can tell little stories and they're just right. kind of like um, anecdotes, which is not storytelling. So, um, but for us, uh, you know, it's only now all the administration because we've been, we're now a non, we've been a nonprofit. So uh, there's a lot of the board meetings and there's getting, you know, the marketing out and then the business getting the, the, <laughs> the taxes, and we create projects. taxes, all that stuff, right? And keeping track of your mailing list and who wants this and sending out products. And it's, you know, a lot of administration. But um, we also were very lucky to be in the right place at the right time when diversity was being asked of many organizations that they needed to diversify. And we were the diversity. So we came in at a time when they needed to bring in people of color. Yeah. So we didn't have to do a lot of marketing or, you know, out there 
in the beginning. Yeah. It. I remember we went to Jonesboro once just to see what, um, you know, see the festival, and we went up to Susan O'Connor, and asked her how do we get on the um, the emerging the new voices exchange stage place. or the exchange place, and she looked at it. She says, "No, I've heard of you, and you are way too uh, good for that. We're going to just put you on the stage as a featured." Nice. Yeah. yeah, we didn't yeah. have to do anything because yeah. she, and then we saw behind her, there was a postcard from Judith Black about us. Yeah. Uh -huh. And oh, people um, were talking. Yeah. So people were talking. Yeah. But again, it is the artistry. You know, oh, it felt so yeah. good. We were like, and we were surprised, very surprised. Yeah. Because you could have, um, you know, you could be the flavor of the month, but if your artistry is not good, yeah, they won't have you back. presenters, don't put someone bad just because the, the, the flavor of the month. Don't put them up there because it'll, it just weakens the whole thing. So, yeah, it does. Um, yeah. yeah. Got to have good art. <clears throat> yeah, I've seen that happen with uh, some smaller festivals where they, yeah. they have, you know, they're doing a good job, but they don't, the caliber of storyteller is kind of iffy. Yes. And yes. So the attendance yeah. is iffy because nobody really yes. knows what to expect. Yes. And you, can, yeah. you, can't, you can't run a successful uh, event, I don't think, unless you've got, you know, solid talent and yeah 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 you're a really good example i think a really good example so Thank could you. you just you're welcome could you describe your creative process i mean you said that robert is is the researcher, the, uh, I'm the sure researcher. Yeah. so so and you've got this huge collection but have you also if you i mean so for those people that have no idea who you might be which is probably the people that listen to this is going to be nobody they're all going to know who you are Robert, you're um, Japanese Filipino, right? That's your yes. your cultural heritage, and uh, Nancy, your cultural heritage is is Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you've been to all of these places and we've traveled, yeah. Yeah, and you've have you collected uh, many of these stories orally, or is most of your work? Uh, some, yeah, some places where we travel, we always listen for where the stories are. Um, of course, in India, there was a, a wealth of stories there. And China, the, the traditional storytelling village we went to, um, had some stories. Um, and of course, Korea. Yeah. So, but most of our research has been here in the States looking at books, books or listening to other people from those communities tell us versions of that. So, one of the processes, if you, if you hear a story from an, a culture that's different from your own, um, or even if it's of your own, is try to find all as many variants as you can because somewhere in there um you know they also have that phrase a story will call to you as an artist you'll know what story to choose well that may be so but on the other hand a story has a cloud uh, of stories around it and there's variations even within that cloud of that one story so like we've heard stories um like you know the story of the the turtle who wants to escape his pond he bites onto the stick as the two, the stork and the or the cranes carrying him up into the world. Um, it's a very ancient story. It's uh, all over Asia. It's all over Abenaki, uh, Native American peoples. It's As found well. in Nigeria. It's found in Vietnam and India. Persia, so it must probably. be a very ancient story. And and so if you can find all the variants in there, the somewhere in there you'll find that point that calls to you, even within one motif of the story. Um, the, the next process I do, I, I do work with both of the outline, uh, what are the key elements in there, as well as uh, I like story maps because I draw, and so I'll draw circles with words in them and arrows, and it's uh, no one can understand it. It looks like hieroglyphics, but I understand what the flow <laughs> of that arc is. Or I'll draw an arc right. line and put the kernels of thought in there and then drop down with um, the elements that the key elements and the bullet points that need to be told in each of those uh, art parts of the story. And I just sit down and write. Yeah, she just <laughs> write. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Robert gives you kind of like a, a little map and, and you try I can't, and I can't look figure at it. Out. You can't figure it no, out. I can't figure out his maps. I don't yeah. think that yeah. way. He's much more visual in that way. I'm just straight ahead. I sit down and go, so I read the story and go, okay. And I just start writing. Yeah. And actually, um, with my eyes going bad, I don't like to read that much. <laughs> I like to draw pictures. Tell me what the story is and what it's about. And okay, and I'll tell you a story. Um, but so when she sent me a script and it's, did you read the script? Uh, I, I read a few words. I scanned it. <laughs> Let me get you. 
Well, that's when you need to record it for him, Nancy. So yeah, as I read it to him now. Yeah, yeah or audio. There's I mean, another he, process. He could, just, he could wear his glasses, but. That's, that's, that's too easy. <laughs> uh, but also, yeah, audio process. I, I I hear things with audio, so I'll record the story and listen to it. Uh, Nancy, again, that's it's all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now, yeah, here's the thing about the, the folk tales versus personal stories. In the recent years, we've been doing uh, historic pieces and lengthier personal stories. And because that's Nancy's department, she actually is able to write, you know, plays, like, you know, 75-minute story. Um, and I feel much safer in a five to ten minute <laughs> motif. Mm-hmm. Give me that one. I can carve that out. I'm with you, Robert. <laughs> yeah. I can do both. I just You're recently good. took two two different sources of a Persian tale and I put them together. So I can do you can. that. I, yeah, you can. I can't do both. You can do both. Yeah, we're writing a story right now. You yourself a good one, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> The challenge yeah. right now is we are writing the story of our of 40 Ethnotech. years. 40 years we've been doing this. So we are actually wow. putting that into a play. Which is driving is, us crazy. Yeah, it's it's long overdue. We've had over a year to work on it. And I've I've been my, done my darnest to procrastinate for a year. And now it's down to the last month yeah. or two. And it's it's going up to the public uh, in June. In June. <laughs> and Online. We're sweating bullets and bricks. Yeah, but I think I've written the script now, and now we have to figure out um, where to put the multimedia parts to it, you know, little bits of our old times and our old folk tales, and then, um, yeah, whatever, it's photos. It's a blend. Yeah, yeah the we'll title is, is based on it's the first so story hard. we did. Actually, the first performance art story, we're titling this new piece called If, if We Only Knew. Mm-hmm. Be, uh, betrothed, betrayed, bewildered, and blessed. I like that title. Yeah, That's really yeah. cool. If we only knew. Isn't that the truth, though? When we've yeah. been done to and someone says something and we didn't respond, and then after the fact you think, oh, I should have said this. If yeah. we only knew. Or accidents that uh, we could have avoided or miracles that we missed because it was right under our nose and we didn't grab it when it was right there. If we only knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've had a few of those. I think we've all, we all. Oh, those. yeah. All of yeah. us, for sure. So how do you feed yourselves artistically? Okay. Artistically, how do we feed ourselves? Re- I <laughs> read. I read novels. I read stories and and it's movies. <laughs> huh? What kind, what kind of, of novels? novels? Uh, oh, I read uh, mysteries. I read um, like Shantaram. Have you ever read Shantaram? Brilliant, brilliant languaging. Um, I, it's a thousand pages, and I read it twice because it was so wow. gorgeous. Um, I do like I do like nice writing. It's yeah, like things it's, you know, you you latch onto a book and you find that the the language that is used is just it's, delightful. Oh, so beautiful. I found these uh, this kids writer um, from the sixties, Leo Garfield, Leon Garfield. Uh, he did these historical type mm. mystery pieces set in Victorian sort of England, and semi pirate stories, but adventure stories. And the language that he used, I tried to get some of my nephews. I mean, now they're grown up. But when they were little, and I was like, you got to read these, because the one, uh, Paul, he was an avid reader, and I just like, read this book, the language is so good, and he just yeah. couldn't get into it. He just oh. couldn't get into it. Mm. it broke my heart. Yes. <laughs> I remember buying uh, Lawrence Yep, a whole bunch of his young people's stories, too, and, and, and books, and sending them all to my nieces and nephews for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Fun when you do that. Yeah. Find somebody that you like and then you send it on to family members. Yeah. And yeah. 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 So Nancy's inspiration is reading and uh, movies. And... Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't read enough. Um, if I do read, it's folktales and myths and legends. And so um, music. It's been a long time because we've been working on all these administration projects. <laughs> so I'm yearning to get back into some books and folktales. And also, music? yeah, music is um, my first. Um, but, my, yeah, my, yeah, my but he's also artist. an amazing visual artist, and we need to start using some of his images that he's drawn. Um, so, I mean, it, I think mostly our, for you, Robert, your artistic stuff is all in your head. Yeah. I mean, he's just very creative. He's, yeah. uh, I call him my little genius. <laughs> uh, 
But I think one of the challenges is because we've made a lifestyle and a profession out of creativity that sometimes even like with storytelling, you know, we're always thinking in this, this rut called, oh, seven minute OEO, the 15 minute time slot, the 30 minute uh, OEO set. And it, it kind of takes the fun out of it. Sometimes. I don't think that. I just well, write. And if it happens to be 10 yeah. minutes, great. If right. it happens to be five minutes, great. That'll fit into a five-minute thing. I don't put that kind of um, uh, frame on. on well, it. okay. So she said, I should I should do my drawings. So do the drawings. So then you can sell them. No, I didn't say sell them. <laughs> you yeah. do. I don't say that. So it's just that I think that the, the artistic, creative uh, muscle is pretty much already there. So we... Right don't feel like we have to do outside stuff to get artistic stuff going. Like people talk about, oh, I'm sitting in front of a blank page or I, you know, don't want to start. But for me, it just starts to flow. Yeah. Uh, and you too, when you draw, you can, you can just yeah. do anything. Yeah. Same with music. He doesn't read music. He plays by ear and he just starts to make stuff. So it's already a, a, a well-honed muscle after Oh, we are very old. So we've been doing it a long time. Yeah, but the pandemic has offered a really strange, very bizarre environment, kind of a limbo zone. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of, well, yeah. for the first part of the first few months of it, we were like floating on, what the hell? Yay, it's a vacation. We? It's a vacation. <laughs> All the gigs are canceled. No more money's coming. We don't in. have to fly anywhere. Yeah, and then like it's the complete opposite of how I felt. I was just like, "Oh crud! <laughs> what am I gonna do?" Yeah. Well, then of course then we get on the, the technology curve, and then all of our time oh, thought God. gets gobbled up in how to set up your studio. Yeah, we have a studio here that Robert uh, constructed. It's very it uh, nice. It's elaborate, yeah. So uh, uh, then, then you know that every other storyteller and musician and dancer and theater company and poet Everybody. are also streaming. So it's now, you know, okay, how are we going to make a mark in there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Luckily, we've been doing long enough. We we have a a brand, so you know we don't have to work that we have hard. Constituents that love yeah. us, yeah. yeah. And at the same time, because but it's too um, much. You know the the technology and the platforms are always changing. That mm -hmm. you have to keep up just to be above, just to get your nose above the water. So, right. like I, um, I understand how Twitter and Instagram work. Not I me. we have an account, we don't use it. <laughs> um, and partly is that I, if I have yet another minute to spend in my human energy, I don't want to be staring at a screen and doing this. But Even every all our friends are saying. Watch me on. I'm performing at. The, and, and it's like, oh, I can't do it. Yeah, there's a yeah. Zoom overload. Because, you know, the festival in Florida, you can now watch it, but you couldn't go to it. You know, you really wouldn't fly across the country to go, go to it. But now you can see it. You can see the one in England. You can see the one in, in you know, Austria. You can see, I mean, ah. Oh, it's too much. It's just too much. It is. I mean, That's it's a wonderful gift that we've been given that we can do this. Yes. I'm seeing people that I would, I've wanted yes. to see. Oh. And I haven't been able to because I, you know, exactly. I don't have the budget to fly out everywhere. And, exactly. And, yeah. and from a performing too. you know, there is so much of it. It's kind of like, yeah. I'm going to pick and choose. And what am yeah. I going to watch? And then, and, and then like, you feel guilty. I'm going to watch the Avengers. <laughs> 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 There's better production quality in that. Yes. <laughs> I know, and then you feel guilty that I'm so sorry I couldn't watch your show. You know? Yeah, and Robert gets so exhausted by the end of the day, he just wants to go into the steam room that yeah. we have here and then lie on his massage thing. You know, just they'll sing like you put in your car. He <laughs> brought it away from the car and put it on the floor. And he just, <laughs> he doesn't want anything to do with anything else. Anything. And I said, no, you have to stop at six. We have to have a life together, okay? Yeah, we do. That's yeah, I know. It's, it's important. And you know, that's the other thing with, with our audiences too. You know, as all the, the, if you're doing a lot of work as a storyteller in schools, you know, all these years we've been saying, Get off that TV. Don't stare at the screen. <laughs> See a live show and now look what the hell we're doing. I know, right? Log on to my show. 
Not Stand theirs, but mine. Screen. Stop watching theirs. Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> We're crazy. I know, yeah. right? It is. It well, is. And, and at the same time, I, in a weird way, I, I really do like just staying home and doing a show and pushing a button because I know I, I we've, you know, we figured out in 40 years we've performed to over a million people. And so the live show thing, we kind of, we, we've been there, we've done that. We love it. And we still love it. But I tell you, it's uh, pushing a button is so much easier than booking a plane and a hotel and a car rental, getting lost, you know, and finding the school and dealing with a janitor, messing up the floor, <laughs> you know, and then moving on to the next school like that for months and months at a time. And not really being connected to a community, really. You know, you enter, yeah. you're on stage, you leave. The audience yeah. leaves, they have to go back to their classrooms. And it's yeah. like, oh, this is not very... Yeah, but who Satisfying. knows where it's going? Um, I think we'll always have some kind of hybrid, and like I said, it is an opportunity to to perform to audiences that normally couldn't see you, homeschoolers. Oh, and we people see in them. other countries, uh, depending on the time zone. Yeah. Um, we just watched the Nakwali. Nakwali, yeah. from Persia. I mean, Iran. Yeah, they were based in Toronto, but it was a whole other storytelling tradition we knew nothing about. Iranian storytelling. Wonderful. Do you think that um, folk and fairy tales can help dismantle any kind of intolerance, either uniquely or otherwise? Mm. Yeah. I think the message is there, but, you know, to carry out the action that goes with the message, it takes a whole other uh, involvement. So, for example, um, we the very first personal story that we did was in 2001. Um or 2000, and it was about an atom bomb survivor's journey from uh, <clears throat> rage and revenge to forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, you know, people can learn about that. Forgiveness is very difficult. So you can know about forgiveness, but doesn't mean you can. But at one point, being a psychotherapist, I did, we performed it in a middle school or high school. I think it was high school. Yeah. And, um, and then I did a 10-week session with them, with the, 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 the counselors chose 10 kids that were either abused or neglected from home and were having youth this kind risk. of problems, youth at risk. And I did 10 sessions with them around forgiveness and other modalities and helped them process that so that they could move on from what they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So that was... Um, that's like an action and it did it did decline their behavior bad behavior it turned out so it was very very useful but you know how many schools are going to have you do that um, but back to this question which is about yes. folk tales and fairy tales yeah, they can we told yeah they have we've had experiences where we told a, a chinese folk tale uh about telling the truth amidst the, uh, the courage at, at your own risk truth. to tell the, to the courage to tell the truth. And after we told that story, we were receiving reports that several young girls were reporting their molestations. And so, um, so folk that tales, helped. yeah. And I think yeah. because why folk tales and myths uh, and, and fairy tales, they act differently on the human brain. I mean, you know, they could probably hook up wires and say, wow, when you hear a, a metaphor or a folk tale, it can enter the brain in a very different way because it's not about facts and about um you know Statistics. information it's about um it's symbolic thinking and you can safely address an issue or a situation but it's not um but it only because makes... it's imaginary a person listening to it can softly enter that imagination and it can touch them and they don't feel threatened because oh it's just a story but wow it's an interesting story oh wow i can relate to that that's like what happened yeah. to me but yeah. but it does take the listener, a certain kind of listener who will take that information and actually use it to create change in their lives. Right. So, um, well, right? yeah, and process because it just hearing the story and then letting it go isn't going to help. Right. So, like, but it's like anything. Everything has a potential of creating some impact in your life, and either you take it and run with it, or you don't. Yeah, right. So, that's why I think yeah. a storyteller is telling folk tales and myths. There's there could be a, a, a sort of a soft um, responsibility that when you you're about to launch a story, or even after you've launched it, afterwards, you, there's a certain framing that introduces um, 
either a question of investigation or inquiry. So when the person's listening to it, they go, oh, that's about this or about something that I've experienced. You know, so um, when a person tells you a story, um, you know, the, the storyteller can say, and how many of you have had that experience? Yes. And people go like this, and the kids go like that, or, or how many of you experience a bully in your life? Well, isn't that just like that, that bully in the story? And how did he resolve that? How did they find a way to, to make yeah, it peaceful? So then it's really important to have some discussion. And I know sometimes in the storytelling world, people feel that you shouldn't have to do that, right? That you shouldn't have to say anything after a story, that it's the story is the story, and that's how it will be received, and it's up to the person. But some people need a little, yeah, guys, a little help yeah, with it. Because everyone has different relationships to symbols. And, and we tell the story right. of, so this story, this Chinese story called The Long-Haired Girl, and about the courage to tell the truth, even under severe threats. Um, when we tell the, that story, and then we tell the story about these middle school girls who went to their counselor afterwards and to report their molestations at home. Uh, then there was a woman who came up to me at Jonesboro who said, you know, I'm going to confront my molester now. Wow. So it can, it can go. Reverberate. Yeah, like that. And who knows how many people have taken a folktale, heard it deeply, and have made a change in their lives. Those are things we won't know unless they communicate to us. Right. Do you think this in this day and age where there are... You know, I know of librarians that have come out of library science school with their degrees and everything, and they don't know the story of Little Red Riding Hood. Do you think some of the um, the prompts that we need to give kids, you know, that maybe we didn't need to do in the olden days because everybody knew these stories, but yeah. now we do need to offer these prompts because people haven't heard these stories before? Wow. Yeah, curriculum guides, huh? Robert's yeah. been working. We've been working on. Well, also, yeah, I, I well, when people are uh, either teachers in the classroom or even librarians, they have a, a broad selection now of Little Red Riding Hood. It can be Lompopo, the Chinese yeah. version yeah. of Little Red Riding Hood. Same um, with Cinderella, could be the Korean version. Yeah, so they're they're seeing that that even within some of these archetypes, that there are, like I said. Um, it's a cloud. The cloud, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Huh. So, but but that's the reason why folk tales um, came into such a, an existence and with such strength is because they were in response to something that happened to someone, yeah. and this was a way of teaching them about what happened and how to resolve it. Yeah. Are you and familiar I, with the but the Indian Pachanchantra? Yes. Yes, yeah, you, you yes. probably have jackals or yeah, yeah, and that was interesting because they are those are all anecdotes and metaphors of animals, but it would teach the the nobility how to maneuver politically based on yes. metaphors. When you read them together in the Panchatantra, it's it's um, there's no there's not always a clear cut answer. There's not always a this is right, right and this is wrong. Right. Sometimes it's kind of like well this this is kind of right. Also, it, it could be wrong, and the wrong is that's also kind of right. If yeah. it's really yeah. ambiguous in some yeah. ways, isn't it? Really, you yeah. have to really think about what are the consequences of these actions, and like how they have been done differently. They're phenomenal stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, in 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 America, we're everything got Walt Disney'd, and you know, like the happy ever after ending. Yeah. And so when I would hear African or read an African story. Or even some of the tale, Asian stories. And it would end up like, oh my God, the good guy lost. It's really a cautionary tale, you know? Yeah. Well, things don't happen happily ever after all the time. And the thing yeah. is to learn. Yeah, learn from the other yeah. people's yeah. mistakes and your own mistakes. Yeah. And of course, when we're looking at um, the Pan-Asian world of folk tales and myths, um, there are certain parts within that bandwidth uh, for example, in West Asia, um, you know, places like uh, the stands, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, you know, um, a thief is an archetype, and it's to be, um, yeah, or yeah, they, they, it's the virtue. You know, there's a virtue in a <laughs> thief because he has skills, and you know, sometimes he, he does steal from the padishah or from the caliph, um, 
but it still hits a life of crime. That's and right. so, you know, like yeah. it, it really messes with your Western values. Like, wait a minute, that's a criminal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, I love those kinds of stories. It's like, hang on, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, and it's again, it's like, what's right and what's wrong? And like, what lens are we looking through to see yeah. the, the story? Yeah. And the cultural lens, but also our personal lens. Like, what background do we come from that has given us yeah. this this point of view that we're looking at everything? And, yeah. And it changes yeah. too. Like, you know, in our yeah. in our lifetime, you know, the, the attention given to the environment and to the biosphere, you know, so then we come across an, a story from Laos where the justice of it is that the farmer pounds a wooden stake up the ass of a tiger. Oh, God. <laughs> and everyone's supposed to cheer the farmer. He saved, it saved his life. But <laughs> no, that's me, it's like, a, oh, an endangered tiger. species. Don't do that to the tiger. <laughs> right. But when, it, when that story was being told, it wasn't an endangered species. That's right. But even right. so cruel. Yes, it, it is cruel. cruel. I, I agree I, with that. Yeah. I don't think I, that, I, I refuse to have that story be told. Okay, so um, if uh, is there a storyteller who? Well, actually, I've got a few more questions now because this one just popped in my mind. That's brought off a whole bunch of other questions. Is there anyone that you felt was you know you looked up to as a storyteller, or were you so busy just doing what you were doing that you kind of like you saw these other storytellers, but they weren't really mentors, as it were? Uh, well, or did you have mentors? I have favorites. I don't. We don't have mentors. I mean, I had a dance choreographer theater mentor but we have um definitely have storytellers that we look up to highly yeah. prize well to get inspired by too like inspired um, by, yeah. you know laura sims laura sims is one jail callahan you know but what is we inspired about them so with laura um it's the elegance of her of her mythic stories or long stories and being able to launch into this this imaginary world, but then be able to step sideways without interfering the momentum of the story and doing a kind of a quirky side you know, side uh, parenthetical commentary and then jumping the back audience, into the river to engage the audience and then come go back yeah. into it. Uh, with Jay, um, it's his regal. It's a regal presentation. It's majestic, um, not only because of his, his length, but also yes. uh, his playfulness, too. So it's a really interesting thing between being um, this sort of royalty, but also there's a little kid in him that I really appreciate. <laughs> um, yeah. Bill Harley, I've always enjoyed his it's, whimsy and his his humor. As yeah. a, you know, it just it, it tickles me. So when I see these people, and I Heather, say, yeah, and Heather Forrest, um, I love her voice, and I love the way she can – be speaking and suddenly she's singing you know and there's no transition That's it just flow. flows and melts back and forth well of course then you know a lot of these storytellers we know them not only from their artistic oh i know elegance. diane edgecombe yeah diane oh edgecombe. my gosh she's wonderful oh she's so sweet so she's, lovely. She's, she's yeah the characters yeah yeah i know there's so many of them we can't name them all because we'd all right. well, be here for a while <laughs> yeah <laughs> But what we look right. for or get inspiration by is um, uh, their use of language, uh, the eloquence of it. I, I don't know how to describe it. But, um, again, it's, it's tones of musicality, rhythm. Um, of course, when they're using just words, it's how they describe they the imagery. They choose their words, yeah. yeah. The choice of imagery, which then is color and shape and composition, but, you know, in the imagination. Right, right. That's simple. I like that. Thank you for answering that question. All right, last question. What would your favorite breakfast be? Where would you like to eat your favorite breakfast and with whom? Oh, okay, let's see. Oh, I Besides each other? Well, I'll, I'm not going to go down that road. Okay. You, can, you can choose whoever you want. Okay, well. Hmm. I always know what I want to eat. Yeah. So you go first, Nancy. Well, oh, gosh. I love, okay. I love waffles and pancakes, but... Not pancakes, but um, crepes. Um, but I also like um, like a veggie scramble, soft veggie scramble, mushrooms and green peppers and tomatoes and onions and uh, mushrooms um, and maybe a chicken sausage. Uh, <laughs> and I would love it by um, in a, either in a, a Japanese tea garden with all the Japanese blossom trees or at the Mediterranean. 
somewhere on the Mediterranean. You know. It's sunny, basically, by the sound of it. Not too hot. Just too perfect. Hot. Just 70s. 70s with a balmy breeze. What Hawaii would do. Um, you're going to take us there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, I would have it with Robert and probably who else? Oh, I don't all know. All those people we named. Hmm. Would you think Barbara Streisand would join us? Or uh, <laughs> I'll go for Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. Stevie oh, Wonder. Oh, yes. Yeah. There you go. They're my main miss, Stevie Wonder and Santana. They're my they're my boys. <laughs> so my uh, breakfast would be a strange mix of uh, European continental breakfast with all uh, several varieties of cheese and breads, brat, good brat, and um, lox and bagels with cream cheese and capers and red onions and tomatoes, uh, mixed with a greasy spoon Filipino down home inner city Filipino um, of. Uh, uh, cafe that serves langanisa which is this very sweet, sweet sausage, sausage mm. on a bed of rice uh with eggs that are very uh, gooey i love gooeyness yeah. and eggs and that strange mix of of um european continental and filipino greasy spoon with that the decor would be actually on the deck of where we are now on orcas island in the northwest on our deck looking out at the, the mountains, the mountains and, the and the water sea, and the, with a little wisp of canada <laughs> over the edge there and it would be with nancy yeah I i'm gonna trade my chicken sausages for the longanisa oh, okay. all right you can do that because it's all imaginary anyway <laughs> yeah. robert nancy ethnotech thank you so much indeed for joining me and being a part of my conversations with storytellers i so appreciate your time i so Absolutely. appreciate thank you. both of your artistries and your um your humor and uh, the work that you do it's it's wonderful Thanks, Thank Simon. you. Thanks Thank for the you work so you're much. doing. Too. Thank you. Yes. For this doing was that. fun for me, and I hope it was fun for you too. Robert and Nancy seem a match made in heaven, both personally and professionally. Go to their website and check out what else they are doing. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can also find me on Facebook and on my website simonbrooksstoryteller.com and on Instagram Simon M. Brooks Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me the English fella and storyteller A shout out to Chris Jed for creating and recording and letting me use this wonderful music for my podcast His band is called Blackpool Mecca Check it out You can keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription in return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content of my work. Thanks to all of you for supporting my little podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Want your name mentioned? Join the little tribe. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then please help me out by doing something you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find this episode. It won't take long and it helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be, and I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. See ya. Simon out. It's just a story. Just a story. <laughs> <laughs>